Alex, thanks so much for joining us on the Football Shirt Pod. First of all, um, obviously lots of people know who you are now. You have a very, very big following on social media. But anyone who's listening who doesn't, tell us who you are and, and what you do. Um, yeah, a bit of a loaded question, but I'll make it as short as possible. So I'm just a big, big Chelsea fan. I am here in the United States. Uh, I started probably following the sport halfway through my life. I'm 31 now. Uh, I probably got into the sport in the most stereotypical American way through seeing random games broadcasted here on channels that we got and, of course, playing FIFA. I'll admit that. And obviously watching World Cups and, you know, really fell in love with Chelsea around the 07-08 season when Chelsea were like runners up and everything. And, uh, you know, I, I joined Twitter pretty innocently a long time ago, to be honest, probably the same way many people do just to receive information, right? And not even to tweet themselves, but just to look at other things. And then I probably like got more immersed in the football Twitter world, if you will, maybe, I don't know, 2015, 2016, but still probably more following accounts rather than tweeting myself. And then, you know, I just decided I I was then in radio and I was in broadcasting. So I was using my Twitter a little bit more for that, actually. And I decided to tweet about Chelsea and, you know, long story short, one day I was really sick of typing. My hand was getting like carpal tunnel, as I would always say, like, you know, your hand starts to form to actually how your phone would be, you know, uh, positioned if you're just holding it all day. And that's not good at all. (laughs) So I decided, you know, I was home alone. I decided, you know what, like, let's, uh, let's just record a video of me speaking about at the time it was a Chelsea transfer target. Jean-Michael Serry was like totally off the map now. But I was just putting together a video of why I did not think he'd be a great signing for Chelsea, or at least I was really bothered by people saying like, oh, he could be the next Xavi. And I was like, oh, come on. What? <laughs> uh, you can't just throw in around a name like that so willy-nilly. Um, but anyway, yeah, now the long story short, people took a liking to those. I, I did Twitter videos for a while, just giving my opinion just really raw off my phone. And then that turned into a YouTube channel quickly. But I had a bit of a background in podcasting um, just because of the whole radio background. So I just decided, you know what, let's do a Chelsea podcast. And I've been doing the byline on Patreon, my own pod now for over two years. And yeah, it's been amazing, you know, having on players, coaches, commentators, et cetera, fans, first and foremost. So yeah, yeah that's a little background on myself. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that because you have some ridiculous guests. And, and as I understand it, people are sort of queuing up to talk to you, ex-players and so on and so forth. Who, who are those, are there any, any kind of moments, are those sort of pinch me moments where you're like, this player wants to come on the podcast and talk to me? Uh, well, pitch me moment happened about like 10 minutes ago. So, I mean, I've had this guy on before, but uh, Martin Tyler, the Martin Tyler, uh, great commentator. This was the third time I've had him on, but like I had a pinch me moment this morning because I had put in, you know, a message to Martin last week just to try and get him on the week leading up to the Champions League final. And uh, obviously, naturally, he's very busy. So, you know, we kind of left it as, well, we'll see what we can do. Um, but I didn't really think anything of it. I assumed he'd be too busy. And I wake up and he's like, I can record in 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, okay. So I just say to my wife, you know, it's pretty cool that I've gotten to the point where like I can do an impromptu episode with Martin Tyler. Um, But I would say, you know, I've had on like a lot of, you know, Chelsea ones, like having Solomon Clue on, who of course started in the Champions League final in 2012. That was pretty special. 
Um, you know, even having referees like Howard Webbon and, and commentators like Peter Drury, not just Martin Tyler. Yeah. Uh, I've had Reese James's father, if we're talking about the like current Chelsea stuff, four times. I've had Reese James on uh, yeah. himself and, and Mason Mount's father multiple times. Yeah. Uh, but I would say doing a three-hour-plus episode with Demba Ba on a Sunday, you kind of mentioned like me being surprised that players would want to do it. I think getting Demba in the first place is awesome, but then having him clearly enjoy the episode so much that he didn't notice we went for three plus hours, which I will say is quite abnormal. Like I will get long in the tooth with some episodes, maybe if it's like a post pod recapping a game, but even a long episode for a post pod is like two hours. Yeah. So the fact that Demba was willing to take almost three and a half hours out of his Sunday uh, to chat with me about anything football, that was pretty special. So that's probably always the one that comes to my mind first. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's fantastic. Do you think, um, you know, we're sort of seeing a move, I think, from football clubs and players now to to kind of try and reach out to fans a bit more than they have done, you know, than perhaps sort of even five or ten years ago, there was still a, a quite a divide between fans and, and, and players and clubs. And do you, th do you think that's changing? And if, if you sort of noticed that and have you benefited from that? Well... Yes and no. I mean, I think clubs are really understanding the importance of fans, like as content creators as well, but also giving like a voice to the fans. I think social media has certainly made that even more clear to clubs. Now, I'm trying to answer this question with ignoring the Super League nonsense because I, that was an example of the club being, well, Chelsea specifically, but many clubs being very tone deaf. Yeah. Now, I know at the end of the day, they wouldn't care anyway because they're just about money. But still, yeah. like I spoke to people at the time who were really, you know, to do with the club, who would know what the club is kind of feeling. And they were surprised by the public backlash. So yeah. that yeah. showed me they are tone deaf. But if I can just forget about that for a second, I mean, absolutely. Like, I think clubs are really realizing the importance of fans of you know just in quantity just all fans from all over the world but also like you know giving a voice to um not content creators per se but you do see like for instance chelsea right they have a youtube channel um and they do like an unscripted podcast or something like that once a week and they've invited on i mean my co-host who uh, you know is is just from the chelsea twitter world you know and um, he just started doing a YouTube channel. And of course, that's showing like, okay, they understand that that's the type of stuff that fans nowadays want to see. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of a loaded question because like me as a podcast host who has a podcast away from Chelsea, it's about Chelsea, but it's not affiliated with Chelsea. It's like, I have a good relationship with Chelsea if I have a relationship with Chelsea. Like people I've spoken to at the club, um, I think they do appreciate my voice. Like I'm not toxic towards the club. So I think they obviously appreciate that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, getting interviews for or really with players from the club is still something that any big club is going to be really kind of like protective over. I'll be honest. I've made personal relationships uh, away from the club just on my own independently with some of the young Chelsea players. And then, of course, if we have something agreed upon, that doesn't mean Chelsea are going to be okay with it. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I feel like a club like Chelsea, and I love them, but they want to tell you that the fans are super important, the most important, right? Like clubs will say that, you know, you're the true support, you know, you're the true voice of the club, but 
Yeah. We know you don't fully mean that, but I do to answer your question, I do think clubs are, you know, realizing that fan driven content like the United Stand run by Mark Goldbridge, you know, can be just as powerful as anything they can produce content wise. So yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a bit of a mix and match thing. So let's let's talk a bit about your your love affair with Chelsea. You touched upon it when we started that it's it's been uh, something that's been kind of well existed for what, fifteen or sixteen years. Did you say? Um, yeah. How, yeah. How, so how how does that come about? How does a guy from were you in uh, Massachusetts? Boston. Right? Boston. Boston. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So how how does a a fifteen sixteen year old kid from Boston start to uh, develop this this love affair with Chelsea that would you know turn into something that's become as big as it as it has. Yeah, so I'm a sports fan, first of all, that like has to go all in. I, I'm such a sports honk for American sports. I mean, if I follow a team, I follow them religiously. I mean, people would be surprised that follow me on Twitter just for Chelsea because I don't tweet about American sports because I know people only follow me for Chelsea, but they'd be surprised. Wow, he has the time to follow the Patriots and the Red Sox and yeah. the NBA like he does with Chelsea. Yeah, somehow. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, it was 07-08. Um, I don't remember the game, but I, I turned it on. I forget if it was ESPN that had coverage at the time, but it wasn't very regular like it is now for NBC Sports to obviously broadcast like every Chelsea game. It wasn't that regular then for just a random Premier League game to be on. Um, but, you know, I, I clearly was in front of a Chelsea game yeah. because Frank Lampard scored a shot outside of the box and i'm not saying it was like the most memorable shot ever because let's be real frank lampard scored a lot of shots outside of the box but for me it was still pretty cool to witness i was really getting new to the sport just once again like i wasn't even watching club football that actively but i was getting more and more into the world cup when it was on and then of course playing fifa um so just him doing that and like i'm sure the commentator sold it to me i'm a big nerd for broadcasting so i'm sure it was like a good call and immediately it was like borderline love at first sight. I was like, wow, that was awesome. I need to know more about Lampard himself. I need to know more about this team. And I just started seeking them out at every possible turn. Um, you know, illegally streaming games back then wasn't as easy, but I definitely did my best to, you know, <laughs> watch everything Chelsea from then on. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, certainly by 2012, like I was watching religiously, obviously, because yeah. that's a few years later. Uh, but FIFA, like, I got to be honest, FIFA, the video game, it, it's a driving force for an American because, and, and probably for many, but if you're into the sport and you're in America, well, if you start watching a team like Chelsea a lot, and I don't want to sound like a snob, but then going to the MLS, like, it, it, it's like, okay, you don't have much of a foundation of watching the sport anyway, so you want to watch the best quality, and I know it's going to sound like I said, a little snobby or even for someone who's like, you know, from England and supports their team where they're from. They say support your local and stuff. They probably don't like these stories. But at the same time, it's like if, if Chelsea's the team that I really started actively watching, then I, I can't get my same fix watching the New England Revolution. You know, it's just not the same quality of football. And I also will say like the Revolution don't even do a great job here where I'm from even reminding me that they're here. So it's not like they're being shoved in my face and I'm turning them down. And I'm not even doing that. It's like, it's actually easier for me to watch Chelsea games, especially at this point, than it is Revolution games. So, uh, yeah, so I just had to go all in. And between playing with them at every turn in FIFA and watching every game, I just, I absolutely fell in love with them. And Lampard was 
the the guy for many of course but he was the guy and then i was really into like i've always in every sport been into young up-and-comers so um to make sure my fandom didn't go anywhere when we won the champions league and Eden Hazard decides to tweet i'm signing for the champions league winner like that really rejuvenated me extra because he was this young you know star to come to chelsea and I became an and as our fanboy day one and I've never looked past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, we'll come back to Lampard in a minute. But um uh have you been over to did you get over to Chelsea at all to watch? Yes. So <laughs> I was supposed to be there last spring for many, many games. Um there was gonna be like an extended stay and kind of get up to speed with everybody I've met over the years. Yeah. I've actually never been to a game at Stamford Bridge. I've been to Stamford Bridge yeah. uh, for like a tour and stuff, um, yeah. but it wasn't even during season. Yeah. And I've been to a Chelsea game, and I don't even want to talk about that Chelsea game because it was that exhibition game, that friendly against the Revolution before yeah. the Europa League final, which, yeah, we won the Europa League final, but of course Ruben Loftus-Cheek had a horrible Achilles injury in that game against the revolution yeah so i would have easily given up my experience of going to that game for ruben not to get injured but no i mean i i still like i said i would have been to many by now but it wasn't for the pandemic but sure. is what sure. it is I'll, I'll be there in august that's yeah. great excellent okay and so how you, you're talking about being a massive um sports fan in general how does how does um being an american sports fan compare with the kind of football fandom and the sort of obsession that that, that uh, fans have for a particular team or whatever uh, well, how does that differ because it always seems to for us like you know obviously with the franchises and all the rest of it in America that's always seemed like quite odds with our kind of fan culture in particularly in England but Europe I guess as a whole yeah I mean I would say the biggest difference like I'll profile a sport against this sport so like I think the NBA is so different from something like this football because some sports in America, I do think have kind of that religion aspect, like football, let's be real. It's more than a sport. It's like a religion. You know what I mean? You know, if you're born in like the smallest county or whatever in England, like your team from there, it, it, like it's part of you, you know, like you don't really normally you don't choose a team. They choose you or if they're just given to you and you're born there, you know, and I know yeah. that and I love that and I respect that. I'm an, I'm an, Ipswich, I'm an Ipswich Town fan, so I, I'm nodding at this point. There you go. Um, so, and I know, hey, if Mason Mount was never good enough when he was young to sign for Chelsea when he was a boy, he'd be a Portsmouth fan to this day. And he still, of course, is. But like, you know, every, no one forgets their roots. Um, so, and I think the closest thing we have to that in America is actually college football. And I would say college football in the South. So like, if you're, you know, wherever Alabama plays, Alabama is your team. You know, like your family could not even like sports, but they get together on Saturday for a big get together to watch Alabama. You know, I'm just using them as an example, probably a bad example because they're amazing. I probably should use like a Southern college football team that's not that good because that shows how loyal they are to their team, but yeah. you get my point. So I think that's the biggest parallel. Um, but like, you know, the Boston Red Sox, they are deep rooted, like they're part of me. Um, Patriots, you know, kind of. But the NBA is like a good example of American sports now and the NFL with, with fantasy football, right? Like. I do support the Patriots completely. I watch every snap. They're my team. The only team I root for. But I watch every game possible because I play fantasy football. And at this point, I do find myself 
rooting for like another NFL player, like I would never root for another Premier League player. Like yeah. even if they were in my fantasy Premier League team, right? Like even if I had Harry Kane in my fantasy Premier League team, I wouldn't root for him in the same way because he's on Spurs. Like, you know, it's just not, it's not done. No. So um, in the NFL, it's different. Like if I have a receiver and I need points, I am rooting for that guy, even if he's on the rival of the Patriots. Okay. I don't want his team to win, but I want him to do well. The yeah. NBA is probably the epitome of that where it is a player league now. Like I'm not saying there aren't diehard fans who, you know, you're a diehard Celtics fan, Lakers fan. But predominantly, it is a player league. Like, you could love Damian Lillard, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, you know, just anybody, Jason Tatum. And, yeah, you might have your team at the end of the day, but it is so much different than, you know, if you're a fan, like, authentically of a team in England or even other countries for this football. So I would say that's the biggest difference. I mean, how the leagues are set up and everything, relegation, there's no relegation. There's so many differences, but, you know, you kind of asking about the fandom aspect. Yeah. Uh, and, and to some, I guess it would seem a little less authentic, but we at least have examples of it over here. It's just not as widespread as it is in England, the authenticity. Yeah. And it seems that certainly with the, the kind of expansion of the MLS, it seems like that's more of a, what we would kind of recognize as a traditional kind of uh, being a supporter of a club it feels a bit more like that and I've seen you know the examples like it Atlanta which is incredible isn't it the the, the kind of yeah, support they yeah. get the size of the ground the the uh, the following and the sort of the ultras culture which seems to have developed as well yeah and Portland's Portland Timbers and the Seattle Sounders have incredible fan bases as well but yeah. see like that's kind of the problem and I'm glad you mentioned Atlanta because that's a newer one and so you do see some passionate fan bases for this sport in America and the MLS but like the fact that I can think of three, like, you know, Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, Portland, Seattle, and I can't now think of another, not the greatest sign, you know, it's just not as common, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because that of course is another huge allure for an American like myself, where you could watch the worst team in a division in England, but the fans could be singing the whole entire time, you know, and that is pretty special. And I know I'm not alone in thinking like that's special because if you even know one team here in America in any sport that has a fan base like that, you also know one that doesn't like, you know, the Red Sox have played every year, the Tampa Bay Rays, you know, for, for as long as they've existed. And there'd be times where the stadium was way more than half empty um, and you could actually hear more Red Sox fans than Rays fans, and it wasn't the Red Sox home. And, like, that would just never happen um, in England, you know. So I really appreciate a full stadium, a loud stadium, uh, a united stadium, not a Manchester United stadium, you know what I mean, a unified stadium. Um, so, yeah, when Atlanta and Seattle and Portland – give that off that's a great sign and i hope that only builds and builds and builds in the mls for sure yeah absolutely what do you know about phoenix rising uh not much so it was drogba on the phoenix rising no yeah. that was the he was that's yeah. right yeah yeah he's, uh, he's he's now part owner right so that's about all i know okay really. that's, fine, that's fine no the only reason i ask is because as, as i mentioned earlier i'm an Ipswich town fan we're now in the third division essentially league one of english football but we've just been bought by um the owners of uh, well it's a, a consortium but the owners of phoenix rising involved in it um the three guys who, who basically turned arizona united into phoenix rising brought drogba in um, and actually it's all the, the the bulk of the ownership is actually the um i think it's the arizona state pension fund 
so we're we're American okay. now. We're an American club now. So um, yeah, I just wondered. Uh, I just wondered what we had coming down the line. But they've been they've been a breath of fresh air so far. So we we shall see. Uh, we'll see what, what's kind of coming further down the line. So the, the MLS in 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 general. Then are you kind of hopeful for the future because it does seem quite exciting. It's, it's sort of reaching us a bit more now in in the UK and and probably elsewhere in Europe. You know, it's much more sort of accessible and it's you can see highlights now and the last five or six years it seems to have changed a bit is that do you, do you feel something kind of starting to really grow now i would say so i, I think atlanta's helped massively to be honest like yeah, having that yeah. team having you know a player or two that obviously might hold some weight even with a european football fan so I think they've been really important. Uh, you know, let's see what Beckham's got planned, you know, yeah. um, for his team. So that could be big. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's still going to come down to the players, you know, obviously. And there can be so many different ways I can explain that. Like, it doesn't have to be a league ever that has just amazing player quality throughout uh, it doesn't even have to be a league that we widely consider a top 10 league in the world. It doesn't have to. I mean, top 15, that would be nice. But it doesn't have to be necessarily a top 10 league of quality. But what it does have to do is it has to have something going for it. It can continue the, I hate to say retirement theme, because that's harsh, right? Because, like, let's be real. David Villa, yes, it was the last, so to speak, like real stop. Although I think he continued to play a little bit somewhere else after New York City FC, but mainly it was the last stop for David Villa. But he was there for a few seasons. It wasn't just like one farewell tour. And he was a really damn good player for NYCFC. So it's like, get me more of those. And that's still great. Uh, I would say the Pirlo and Lampard experiment was more of the retirement thing yeah, you know yeah, yeah, but like yeah. via obviously made a huge imprint so yeah. you can go that route um what Zlatan did was probably pretty great I mean Zlatan's such a freak and I say that in a good way that what he did is pretty rare because he went to LA and then everybody feels like okay this is the last stop for Zlatan and now he's back at Milan being one of the best strikers in the world again yeah. helping them get Champions League football yeah. but like even stints like that can help. And I mean, if it's someone like Zlatan, that really helps the league. Like more, I hate to be so business focused, but more eyes, is just always a good thing. Yeah. So if Zlatan or someone like him can bring, you know, if Erling Holland in 15 years does the same thing, I'm sure the MLS will never say no to that. Yeah. So that will always be important to have that. But I think the best way I think the MLS can be viewed in a better way is even if it's just a, a bit more of a funnel league, so a league where you could have some young talents yeah. and if they really appear too good for the MLS and you've seen a few examples of this, but I need more. And, and you know, say, I don't think they'd ever be like 18, 19 and probably make the move to a big club in Europe. But what about they, they've been a young player in the MLS for a few seasons and at 22, 23, they're clearly too good for the league. And maybe like, let's be realistic, a mid table Premier League club takes, a, you know, buys them. And then they're pretty good. And then all of a sudden, now they're 25, 26 for a mid-table Premier League club and a bigger Premier League club wants to buy them. Like even something like that, I'm trying to be realistic, right? Like even if we get more teams throughout the MLS kind of being a bit of a funnel, um, you know, service yeah. for Premier League and other leagues, it gets more eyes actually on the MLS because a lot of fans are like myself and they want to see 
where any youngster could come from that could be made for their team. So ideally a blend of everything I just said, you know, like even the guys in the middle of their career, just being quality enough that if you switch on a game, it's, it's a good enough level, but yeah, keep the retirement aspect too. I don't think that should go away. That's still a great aspect of it. And by the way, Josh, that puts fans in the seats. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, if I never had the chance to see, I'm being hypothetical, but if I had never had the chance to see Cristiano Ronaldo in European football, and then he goes to the MLS, I need to go see him. You know what I mean? So I, I don't think that aspect should ever leave. I don't think it's a bad thing that it's been viewed as a retirement league, but I want the younger part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right, let's get just go back to Chelsea. Big, it's a big game on Saturday, I think, isn't there? Man's yeah, Champions League final. That's it. Um, so, how how are you feeling about it? Because it's a weird one. This, I mean, in normal circumstances, a team who scraped into fourth, and let's be honest, you did scrape into fourth on Saturday, just past or Sunday, um, against one of the Europe's greatest ever teams potentially I don't know if we want to go down that route at the moment but in normal circumstances you would say Man City clear favourites but actually two recent defeats or two victories for Chelsea rather against Man City and I think Guardiola's probably a bit nervous about this one well, he might be, but in the press conference yesterday, he certainly didn't give off that vibe. He had a, a nice 30-second clip of saying, I am so confident in my team. I couldn't be more confident in my team. Now, Chelsea fans were like, oh, Chelsea should use this as bulletin board material, you know, like to get them extra motivated. And fine, they can if they'd like to. Great. Like anything that could help Chelsea be even more motivated for a Champions League final, great. But I don't think they're going to need any extra motivation. But at the same time, I was thinking Pep's totally within his right to say that. It's not like cocky to say, I'm so confident in my team. Wouldn't you want your manager to say that? I mean, I didn't think that was that groundbreaking. But yeah, I mean, I do think that Pep is not going to go into this game extra comfortable. Even if he's confident in his team, he's not going to go into this game extra comfortable, obviously because of the recent results and probably because he has the acknowledgement that he is facing another top coach in Thomas Tuchel. Like when it comes to X's and O's and being tactical, I mean, Pep arguably is the best there is, but I think Pep also knows another good tactician when he sees one. So I think it's clear he has respect for Tuchel in that regard. And he also knows Tuchel was in this competition in the final last season. So yeah, I mean, there'll be no comfort on Pep's part which makes me almost a bit more nervous, but then again, I can't get any more nervous anyway. So uh, (laughs) there's so many ways I could look at it. I would just say, like, I do agree with everybody. I was a little bit nervous when Chelsea won that game against City, the last one in the Premier League when they stole it, because I was just saying what many Chelsea fans were saying, like, oh, law of averages. Like, no way you beat City this many times in a row now, you know? But a lot of people have kind of calmed me down, and they've said, and they're right, the Champions League final is different from everything else. It's a one-off. You know, maybe that would be true, right, if there was another Premier League game to go. You know, maybe it would just be it sways back to the team that didn't win the previous one if it's that close. But anything can happen in a Champions League final. You know there's going to be a winner, no doubt about it. And I think for every player out there, as much as they say, oh, it's just football, it's not just football. So I'm not too scared of that aspect. What I do think will be interesting is like, we didn't face each other that long ago. So what do the managers, either manager, want to keep exactly the same? What do they want to change? Is someone going to overthink it? Is someone going to try and 
psych the other one out by not changing anything. You know, I guess you could say that would be maybe Tuchel since it's worked, but maybe Tuchel also is thinking a step ahead and being like, okay, Rich James ran Benjamin Mendy ragged down, you know, that side. So even if it's not Mendy, like, you know, maybe I don't put Reese there. Maybe I put Aspie there. Maybe I keep Reese at right center back. And if Pep thought I was going to put Reese there again, ha, I'm not going to, you know, like it's, it going to go that far where the other one's kind of anticipating how the other one could adjust based on the previous matchups, maybe. But then again, I mean, I feel like Pep Gordiol and Thomas Tuchel are guys who have awareness of the opposition, but also would rather just play their football yeah. and just have the game play out. So I don't think you'll see many surprises with the approaches. Like I think City are going to try and be City and I think Chelsea are going to try and be Chelsea. And I'll just say if Chelsea try and be Chelsea, and I know that sounds so cliche, that means Thomas Tuchel will go into the game, obviously hoping for five goals scored by his team, but he'll go into the game somewhat realistic that we need to be sound and structured. We don't have goals to come from everywhere. We're not like City. You know, we actually have the weirdest stat ever that this is the first time since 1910-11. 1910-11, like deep that year, okay? Ages ago, before our parents were alive, okay? 1910-11, that a team in the English top flight has had a leading score. Of course, this team has to qualify for top four. So first time since 1910-11 that a team has qualified for top four and their leading goal score wasn't in double digits. Wow. Since 1910-11, I mean, that's mad. Yeah. So Tuchel obviously knows that we don't have necessarily what City have where we can just absolutely break the game open like that. Yeah. I mean, maybe uh, law of averages works out and all of a sudden all the attempts go in for one game. That's what I'm naively hoping. But I think Tuchel, if he wants to be authentic and do what's done so you know well for him so far in his Chelsea tenure, he'll play the same formation, he'll play sound, he'll make sure that you can't really pierce him between the lines, which means, Josh, that... Very likely, I'll be on a respirator because it'll be an extremely close game towards the end of it. Are you going to win? Yes, we are going to win. Okay, okay, be cool, be cool. What's the score? You know what? I'm going to go with that naive thing I just said a second ago. And although I don't think it's going to be as comforting as the scoreline would say, and I'm going to make you give me this clip if this comes out true, because I will post it. I'm going to actually say it's going to be 3-1 Chelsea. Okay. I'm going to say that finally Timo Werner and his chances go well and he gets a little luck and maybe even, you know, he shows a little bit more skill. But once again, like I said, I don't know if 3-1 will feel like 3-1. Like I'm saying it could be 2-1 and then maybe like, you know, semifinal style when Mount scored or semifinal style in 2012 when Torres scored. Like maybe there's a nail in the coffin goal. But yeah, 3-1. 3-1, okay, that's good. Well, Tuchel's done an incredible job, obviously, but you mentioned Lampard and him being one of the kind of figures that you uh, you, you most liked when you first started following Chelsea. How how painful was it to see Lampard go earlier this season? Uh, about as painful as it gets, to be perfectly honest. I mean, yeah. he was somebody that I also publicly, even just kind of as like a content creator and as... I wouldn't call myself a figure, but like just somebody who has any voice in the Chelsea community. I really, really backed him. Like before he was even hired, I was really into whole, the whole youth movement and, you know, what Lampard could bring at a tough time for Chelsea, you know, with the transfer ban and losing it and Azar. So I was really behind it. I'm a big Mount guy. 
So yeah, it was tough. But at the same time, I mean, I had to say to myself a while for like those struggling months leading up to the sacking that, hey, above all, I support Chelsea and uh, these losses are more painful or, or just like the vibe, they're more painful than sacking anyone. You know, so as much as it's going to hurt to sack Frank, like I was getting myself ready for it because the losses were hurting me more than any sacking can hurt me. So, you know, it still was a bit surprising that morning just because like the day before was an FA Cup game and Chelsea actually won it and Mount was made captain and it just was really hard to take. But especially as a maybe it helped being a content creator. I will say this because I had to just dive into content as well. So I do feel bad for fans out there that like just had to fully deep it only as a fan, even though I'm always a fan, even as a content creator, just because then they're just sitting there. They're not, they might not be talking it out. And they're just thinking about like, wow, Frank was actually sacked. Like it's over. Um, but I then had to like quickly turn the page because Tuchel, you know, same day or later that day was rumored to be the next guy. So I had to at least turn the page, force myself to turn the page and, that first game under Tuchel was so weird, so weird. You know, he'd been there for 24 hours and, yeah. you know, it was a draw. So it was still hard to get over the Frank thing because it was like, okay, we know that's not Tuchel's fault, the draw. But at the same time, it's like, I don't even have a win to like ease the pain a little bit. So yeah. it was hard. Yeah. It was really hard. But I would say once Mason Mount, and I don't want to make it all about Mount, but he's so symbolic to the Frank Lampard tenure. Once Mason Mount started the next game, obviously he didn't start the first one under Tuchel. Once he started the next game and it was clear, like, all right, Frank's gone, but what Frank has left isn't gone. Now, Reese James and Callum actually was like actually pretty prominent for Tuchel early on, Hudson Adoy. Yeah. Now he's not as much, but it did feel like, okay, Mal, Hudson Adoy, Reese James, Frank's presence is still here. Then the results got really good under Tuchel. That was needed because, yeah, my heart was hurting. But the, the good form that came with Tuchel helped a bit. And then Tuchel's words, even here and there about Frank, those helped as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, Lampard perhaps going slightly earlier than people expected. I mean, he's still kind of, he's still got godlike status, hasn't he? He hasn't done anything. The results he didn't ruin anything. He didn't yeah, ruin at the end of the day, like his legacy wasn't tarnished. Not to interrupt you, but like... Yeah. You're good to bring that up because he just had his probably biggest interview last week, an exclusive with The Telegraph, and he did admit, I was worried that this could kind of change my relationship with the Chelsea fan base and Chelsea. And I think even people who were like saying he needed to leave a long time ago, yeah. some people that were harder on him, no one actually thinks that he ruined any legacy, which was obviously a huge fear of people's right when he was hired. Like, oh no, he's such a legend to us could he potentially tarnish it? And at the end of the day, we can debate how good of a manager he was or he wasn't, but he didn't tarnish his legacy at all. Yeah, absolutely. Right, before I let you go, let's just quickly talk about football shirts. Uh, it seems to make sense, given that we're a football shirt podcast. Um, uh, <laughs> so which are, the, which are the kind of Chelsea shirts or what is the Chelsea shirt that's the, the ones that stand out to you, the most iconic, the ones that you um, hold most dear to your heart? Well, I mean, this is a lovely kit that you might know something about uh, that I always kind of like associate with certain players. Well, this kit, many kits when they're retro. So like, and obviously picture, actually of all people, I can picture Frank Lampard wearing it, but I can picture Alex, the defender for Chelsea, yeah. the Brazilian center so, back so, way back so when. And what year, what, year is, what year is it? Just remind me. 
Man, oh, now you're going to put me on this. Must be around 2010, is it? Yeah, 09-010 or 09-010. I don't think 010 is a thing. Well, technically it is a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But anyway, I think it's about that. Yeah, don't quote me. But yeah, yeah, I mean, this shirt, obviously the (laughs) classic blue, the year we won the Champions League. I mean, obviously it's always a classic blue, but that, I mean, such a beautiful and clean and simple kit. Yeah. Uh, I always loved actually the Samsung sponsor. So I just felt like it went well with the kit. Yeah. Um, Chelsea had a black and orange kit um, around that same time. Samsung as the sponsor, maybe it was the year before we won the champions league. Yeah. That was a re- I really liked the black and orange one. Yeah. Um, I like when Chelsea incorporate yellow in their kits. Yeah. So Ed and Azar's first or second year, there was the black with like yeah. yellow trim. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. yeah. yeah that yeah. was really nice. Really nice. Um, oh, this one. And I'm going to forget the year on this one. And this is a bad one for me to forget the year of. It's definitely a bit earlier. The white one. And it's before Samsung. It's the Fly Emirates sponsor. The white one with the blue, like it's a royal blue and a navy blue strip down the middle. Yes, it's yes. actually not the um, the current Chelsea badge. It's more of the CFC Chelsea badge. Yeah. Um, you know, still like the classic Chelsea players wore it, but it was, um, yeah, before the Samsung. That's a beautiful one. Yeah. So. Yeah. I like a kit normally that you can wear in many different situations. Like yeah. that's my thing. So obviously for a game, like, but there are some kits that are so sporty, if you know what I mean? Like you don't wear them ever like out to dinner or something because they just yeah. truly look like that's something you wear if you're playing the game or watching a game. Yeah. But I, I really love a versatile kit where obviously you can wear it for a game or whatever. Uh, but I love if, you know, even if it's a kit where it's clean enough, I don't like too much going on on a kit. So if it's clean enough where your wife is like, you know what, I'd still rather you wear a dress shirt, but <laughs> that kit, that's fine because at the end of the day, it's kind of simple. So I, I do on average, like the cleaner style kits, uh, Chelsea wore this last season, this, they only wore it once now, but an FA Cup retro blue kit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like pretty much all blue with yeah. just the yellow little emblem. Oh, man. Yeah. And I've asked a bunch of players too, like <laughs> without asking them about that one specifically, like, hey, name me some favorite kits. And they all mentioned that one, even though they only wore it once. I mean, that was beautiful. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying like ones with a lot going on I'm against, um, but you know, I, I am kind of partial to the clean ones. I will say just to not make this fully about Chelsea. Yeah. Whatever Jordan brand is doing with PSG is just fantastic. I mean, I think their kits are so nice and I know I'm probably sounding like a super millennial when I say that <laughs> because, you know, like PSG's kind of the trendy club and Jordan brand, like to have Jordan brand as your sponsors, a bit trendy and everything like that. But but they actually follow what I just said. They're more often than not pretty simple. The Jordan brand kits, like not too ridiculous. Some even have a retro feel. Like I think their new kit for next season has just a little bit of like a red lining trim on it. It's just have a navy blue. Like, have you seen the shorts? 
The no, shorts, I don't like I... the shorts are the the modelled on the um, the Bulls shorts from the, that kind of late nineties with the you have to oh. have a look at them, yeah, with the trim and it's they actually look quite good. They've lost the stripe though; they've removed the stripe, which they did. And I and I actually think if we're just looking at the shirt, I prefer this year's one over the next year's one. Yeah. yeah. But overall, like the just the look and the vibe I get from sure. PSG's Jordan brand stuff is pretty good. So yeah, yeah. yeah I give you a retro answer and a more modern answer yeah well i should say um uh, probably about um, about 40 percent of our sales maybe that's slightly high maybe about 35 percent of our sales are now to america um a huge demand for for retro shirts in america and i don't know if that's because you know we were talking earlier about you and you were talking about earlier about the sort of clamor of you know the european leagues over the mls because if mm-hmm. you're going to invest some time in watching football soccer you want to watch the best um and yep. perhaps this the mls doesn't obviously have that kind of heritage and history so but you know i guess uh, lots of football fans would rather buy a vintage shirt than the new shirt and if you're going to do that then where you're going to where you're going to go you're not going to go into the mls so I, I don't know if that's the reason for it but it's just been really interesting to see the real kind of interest in um in vintage football shirts in in america it's great to see it's good for us anyway um yeah <laughs> cool and, and what about chelsea's kit? just before i let you go chelsea's kit this season are you a fan or not uh so when you say this or, season or sorry, was the, it for ne- sorry next season sorry yeah it's a very polarizing topic it is and i know that sounds weird if you're not a chelsea fan it's like what i haven't heard anything about it but no if you're in the chelsea community it's a polarizing topic because first of all the reaction of most fans is just to complain about the kit um usually unless it's just so unanimously amazing but chelsea fans have really not been liking the nike partnership overall uh they're really wishing adidas was still the sponsor i think nike's actually had some decent ones for chelsea but i do agree they are kind of hit or miss with chelsea Mm -hmm. i don't get i still don't get it josh why the pattern on the new chelsea kit goes from zigzags to checkers and like I'm okay with doing things a bit differently, like being a bit, I'm not this old fashioned where I'm like, everything has to be exactly the same, proportionate, clean. Like, no, I'm okay if you get like a little funky with stuff. But even if you just look at it, like when you look at the back of the kit, you'll see the player's name, the number, and then like on the very, like the left sliver or right sliver, like where the player's name ends, it's checkers up and down. And then like the rest, so like the, let's say 75% of the rest of it um, is is the zigzag pattern. And it, yeah. and it doesn't blend into each other or anything like that. So when I really fixate on the zigzag to the checker, I just can't get over it. Now, if it was like intertwined, I'd be all for it. Like zigzag checkers, just all like kind of a mess. I'd actually be more for that. But it honestly looks between me and you, or not between me and you, I'll say this to anyone. It honestly looks like they, they started on one design with zigzags and then the maker was just like, no, nah, actually checkers, let's do checkers. And then they <laughs> forgot to erase the zigzags. Yeah. But I don't want to smash, I don't want to like smash it too much because I actually don't hate it like some people do. Yeah. Um, the blue, I mean, obviously I always love the royal blue and it does have this like neon yellow green, like I don't know what color it actually is. I think it's, a, yeah, it's yellow, like this neon yellow trimming which I think really helps the kit, like big time. I always think uh, uh, when it's a blue base, just a little, you know, pop of yellow or whatever can really make it look clean. So to be honest, like I think when you're just watching a game and you see the kit on the pitch, like I think we will learn to kind of like the look. 
Um, but when you fixate on it and you zero in, I just, I will never understand the whole zigzag to checker thing. But I presume they're wearing it on Saturday, are they? No, they're, they're actually, oh, okay. no, they, they lost in the FA Cup final with it. And I don't think that's why they're now abandoning it. But no, it looks like they actually, it was announced today. Um, they will be wearing just the home blue and City will be wearing their home blue. So we're going to have a royal blue and a, a light blue, which could be interesting. Um, I originally thought Chelsea were actually going to wear the alternate red and blue, like the Palace style kit yeah. from this season, which would be really not very traditional at all. But then again, we've had some good games in that kit. But no, it'll be classic blue from this season. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. And Alex, what what else can we expect to to from you in the the coming kind of weeks and months ahead? Yeah, so I mean, the next few days, definitely I'll be previewing this CL final uh, more than I've ever previewed anything. Like <laughs> yeah, the yeah. schedule is crazy. Yeah. And then after that, um, yeah, I mean, I'll be doing Euro coverage for sure. You know, I, I, the thing about having the podcast is I do enjoy the times where maybe the season isn't happening, the club season, because the schedule this season was crazy too, you know, like yeah. a game every few days that there's only so many like different style episodes I can even do where I can have on a player and we can talk about older things. Like we can have story time and stuff because I have to keep up to date with what's happening with the club. So um, not that I like that the pandemic happened, but when that first lockdown happened, I got to kind of like do different style episodes. That's when the Demba Ba one happened. Like we can really like go other directions. So um, I certainly will be doing episodes about the Euros for sure. I'm going to be really into it, like with England and a couple other countries that will be actively following. Um, so I will cover that. But also, you know, I'll try and, you know, have different style episodes with some former players. And then you know, before you know it, like beginning of August, the Premier League season starts again. So, you know, just nonstop. And I have, I guess I'll just add in, in case somebody new of me who's watching this and they're not that up to date. I have started like, offering now a video version of the podcast um still just on patreon yep. but now for the most part i'm recording on video and also raw audio so i'll put out a video if you prefer a video um and i'll put out a just audio version if you prefer that so that's a big change because i did 200 plus episodes with only audio so yeah well wow, yeah. wow, brilliant excellent we'll look forward to it and and look uh, i hope you have a, a brilliant time when you get over stanford bridge in august fingers crossed that fans are allowed thank back you here. you can enjoy it. alex absolute pleasure to talk to you thanks for your time awesome josh my pleasure thank you so much 